This is part one of a two-part program. I'm Carrie Stuck, host of Beauty Now, a weekly podcast that gets the latest in all things from lasers, lashes, lifts, hair, breast lifts, injectables, but today we're blessed to have an expert on inner beauty, Dr. Rhonda Beeman. challenges you and is new and I'm telling you you will grow young pretty fast the people that really retain their youth and really retain their ability to grow young are the people who practice what I found the science called neoteny which is based on the idea of uh, Ashley Montague I don't know if you remember him when I was Thank you so much for joining us, Rhonda. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, today we're going to discuss your book, You're Only Young Twice. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Which actually, I love the name of the book, and it's quite surprising. It's not really about anti-aging. It's about inner anti-aging. Yeah, I like to. I prefer to call it. Even before Dove commercials came out, I prefer to call it. It's about pro aging. It's about the blessings of even having a chance to uh, think about aging and being a second part of your life and and living it to the maximum. I like that pro aging. And please tell our listeners about all the uplifting advice you have in there because there's just too much to name. I think this should be on Oprah's book list. <laughs> I really do. From your mouth to God's ears. No, really true. (laughs) It's hard to explain because, you know, I read a lot of beauty books, and I was just sitting down to read this one, and I was just feeling all down and low, and it just made me feel so good. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, that's one of the, the, you know, processes that makes a writer. They say, how do you end up writing a book? Well, a lot of what they call behind glue, you know, (laughs) you have to sit down and and be disciplined enough to do it. And what makes you do that is hoping that what you believe or what you found out will help other people. So that makes me feel really good. About when I turned 40, Terry, one of my best girlfriends got a major facelift, and I volunteered to take her to the doctor and back. And, you know, I, I watched what she went through, and we talked all about it. And and I started me thinking about myself turning 40, and then, you know, somebody else got one, and then one of my guy friends dumped his wife, got a young girlfriend in a red sports car, and I, I was just watching all of this, you know, outer stuff going on as people were trying to reclaim their youth, reclaim some meaning in their lives by going out after the outside stuff. And I thought, there's just got to be more to it than that. Because you and I both know, no matter how much money you spend, no matter how many pills you take or doctors you see or nips and tucks, eventually that model proves, uh, you know, fatalistic. There's only so much that model can do. The people that really retain their youth and really retain their um, um, ability to grow young are the people who practice what I found the science called neoteny, which is based on the idea of uh, Ashley Montague. I don't know if you remember him. When I was 
young, there used to be the Merv Griffin Show. Do you remember the Merv Griffin Show? I hate to say that I don't remember the Merv Griffin Show, but also you might want to explain the word neoteny to a lot of our listeners. Neoteny quite literally means the science of growing young. And Ashley Montague was this guy who discovered the elephant man and the importance of touch and all this kind of stuff. Well, as a university professor, I started looking into the reason why our generation, and really only our generation, has had this extended life. For 99% of human history, the average lifespan was 18 years old. I mean, they didn't even get a chance to be young once, you know. So we, we're the first ones that live a good 50 years oftentimes past the time we've raised our children. And so why and what and what can we use it for and all this kind of stuff. So neoteny, according to Ashley Montague, was the reason anthropologically that we even became human beings. It was this uh, delayed growth process that let us develop our brains and things like that. Well, that was all well and good and really thick science and, and, you know, nothing that interesting to the normal layperson. But it was in the second part of his research where he started talking about behavioral neoteny. So if neoteny is the science of growing young, he said there are behaviors and states of mind that keep people youthful all the days of their lives. The whole point being you should die young as late as possible. And so I started researching those traits and those ideas and those uh, habits of mind that can keep a person's spirit young beyond what their chronological age or the number of wrinkles they have may show. Uh, it's about staying young from the inside out. So that's really what neoteny means, and that's really the basis of you're only young twice. And what's been really fun is during book signings or uh, I give presentations all around the world about this, they always, there are all people who come up in the audience and go, can't you be young three or four times? <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you can. Well, why don't you share some of your ideas in your book for staying young? Okay. One of the, th- one of the things that really, was really interesting to me is this research out of Harvard where they took people, uh, j- men, that were 60 to 70 to 80 years old, right? So they put them in a house. And they, before they put them in the house, they measured things like their eyesight, their finger length, their muscle capacity, uh, their, their memory, all that kind of stuff. And then they put them in this house. See, this is so unbelievable. If that For 20 years ago, that's the furniture, the magazines, the food, everything was like their lives would have been 20 years prior. So they lived there for three weeks, Terry is all, and they finished the experiment, the television shows, music, everything. Come back in and redo the test, and I don't need to tell you what happened. Their eyesight improved, things like their finger length, their fingers got longer, Stuff actually youthened in those three weeks simply because of the state of mind of believing they were living 20 years prior. And actually, that's like a lot of the spiritual books right now. When you actually think about it, you can bring it to you. Absolutely. So one of the things they found was, and, and think about the concurrent, the opposite of that. Think how many times one of the things that I state in the book is this, Still syndrome, S-T-I-L-L, still syndrome. Are you still teaching aerobics? Are you 
still working? Are you still writing? Are you still playing guitar? Whatever it might be. You get to be a certain age and people feel compelled to ask you if you're still participating. Still That's so doing true. Things. That's so true. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, is there a reason I shouldn't be? Or, you know, are you going to do that at your age? <laughs> think, think about the language involved in this. So um, what I, how I define old in this book is outlook, language, and drives. You know, how, what is the lens at which you look at your life? What kind of language do you use to describe what's possible? And what gets you up in the morning? Like right now I'm at the age where I get up in the morning. I'm 55 years old. I get up in the morning and I go, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> and where do you go in the morning? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I go. You have I places still, to go. That's right. I still have places to go. So, um, you know, it's all about, again, perceptions and lenses and language and making sure that you have something that gets you up in the morning. And so one of the things that uh, I would like to talk to with your listeners is about your outlook on life, if you would allow me to do that. No, that would be great. And I would suggest to people to get a pencil so that you could actually write some of these ideas down. Oh, great. Um, The first thing to think about in your outlook is your level of resilience. When we're young people, when we're first born even, nobody has to tell us to get back up again when we fall. It's just in our being. This is what Ashley Montague says. All these traits, these youthful qualities are our first birthday presents. This is what we're given to make us human, this optimism and resilience and joy and wonder and imagination and laughter, song, dance, all these things that you're born with, they are part of your soul. And I I want you to think about those as like precious marbles in a bag. And I call them marvels instead of marbles. And what happens in life is we start to lose our marvels. We either squander them, we trade them, we give them away. And at the point, a certain point in our lives, which people used to call a midlife crisis or whatever, you look into that bag of marvels and it's sort of empty. It's one or two things left. And that's where you start getting the red sports cars and trying to find outside-in sort of, you know, replacements. The midlife crisis. Yes. And one of the things that they've shown is uh, in things like creativity and resilience and optimism by the fourth grade, Terry, fourth grade, we start to lose these qualities. School beats it out of us. Parenting doesn't help sometimes. Other people, peer pressure, those kinds of things. So the first thing that, that your listeners should really think about is their own resilience. How capable are they of getting back up again? Whatever life may present to them that ability to get back up, to bounce back. And it is an inborn trait, and what's really fabulous is it can be reignited. Um, There's a fabulous book out called Adversity Quotient, um, and it measures what they call your AQ. And it's a fascinating piece of work because one of the things that it shows is that you can replenish and reframe and reinvigorate your own adversity quotient, your ability to uh, use adversity as fuel instead of letting it cripple you when the bad things happen. For instance, 
you know, I was uh, given a, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis when I was 40. And, you know, a lot of people take that as uh, a reason to go sit down and uh, give up and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> I think I was telling you at one point, I was so glad it wasn't a brain tumor that I was like, okay. <laughs> well, I shared that with my dad, who also has multiple sclerosis, and he has a really great attitude as well. He would jump in the ocean, and we'd all have to pull him back out because he didn't know if he could get back out. <laughs> and hey, but he jumped in. That's he did. He jumped in. He's a lot like you. And that's the great metaphor about life is jumping in. And what happens is throughout the resistance and the no's and the failures and the sadnesses, we start to give up. And here's the deal, Terry. Life doesn't care if you give up. Life just keeps rolling along with or without you. And it's you that have to decide, you know, I get this one shot. I don't get to come back to the party. And if I want to enjoy it, that's going to be totally up to me, not my spouse, not my friends, not my job. It's about how I look at it. It's about what I choose to do with my days and my time and my hours. So resilience is really the bedrock of all of this, the being able to say I matter and I want more out of my life, and I'm not going to let myself get worn down or worn out. And I am going to try to replenish this natural you know, resilience that I was born with that will keep me trying, that keeps me in the game, that keeps me believing. One of the, another piece of research your listeners might find interesting is they did a little bit of research on hope, and they put rats in a big tank and let them swim to see how long it would take them to drown, which I know sounds very cruel. but Horrible. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> this is how we find stuff out. And, Horrible. Um, it took them seven hours before they finally gave up. <clears throat> so they took another set of rats, put them in this tank, started letting them swim. By about five hours in, they pulled these rats out, kind of dried them off, give them terry cloth robes, a little dinner, you know, some that warm better. Yeah, some warm lights, all that kind of stuff threw them back in the tank. They swam for another 21 hours because they believed in their minds that something good was going to happen here any moment, any moment. And that's the power of hope and to keep you going, to keep you swimming up tide, to keep you trying. And that is really tied into your outlook about life and your resilience. So that's the first thing about getting old is making sure you don't lose your resilience. But how do you make sure that you don't lose your resilience or your hope when you're feeling absolutely despondent? Well, it's actually your response to it because everybody's going to face those things, aren't they? You know, yeah. nobody gets out of life unscathed. Nobody gets out of life alive. And so, you know, the old saying about, you know, stuff happens and no one's immune. So what, what really is critical, and, and I talk about this in my book, is how you respond to the bad stuff. And I actually really want to keep talking about this, and I need to take a commercial break right now for Personal Life Media. And so we're going to be right back with Dr. Rhonda Beeman in a moment. Hi, this is Renee Stevens, host of Inside Out Weight Loss. If you want to be a thin person, you have to learn how to think like one. Learn how on my weekly show that aligns mind, body, and spirit for lasting change. Find me on iTunes or at personallifemedia.com. 
Weightloss.com. That's Inside Out Weight Loss, how to think like a thin person on PersonalLifeMedia.com. We're back with Dr. Rhonda Beeman, author of You're Only Young Twice, and we were just talking about how to be young from the inside out. Welcome back, Dr. Beeman. Thank you. We were talking about how you respond. We were talking about resiliency, how your outlook on life determines your age, and that the bedrock of that is your resilience. And you were saying, you know, what happens? What do you do when this bad stuff happens? Well, it's actually how you respond to it. It's not avoiding it, and it's not pretending it's not there, and it's not pasting on a big smile and going, I'm okay. (laughs) But it's about finding ways to respond to it in ways that strengthen your uh, your spirit and self rather than diminishing it, diminishing it. So I talk a lot in the book about your core response. How much control do you have over something? So, for instance, my mother was just diagnosed with metastasized breast cancer. How much control does she have over the cancer? Not a lot, but she has control over her response. Um, for instance, here's a better one. Have you heard of that Randy Pausch? The professor who is yes. 40, yeah, 46 just, years old, yes. liver cancer. Yeah. His I just res- to tell our listeners about who he is. I mean, he's the one who was on the video. And- yeah. He gave the last lecture, which is a uh, thing that all, all universities do. They ask uh, the, their favorite professors to give what they would be their last lecture. Turns out when they asked him, he really was uh, just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, 46 years old, three very young babies. He has six months to live. He gave this amazing lecture. It's on YouTube if any of the right. listeners want to see it. But, he gave, he, but the thing was, he said this, and this is what I mean about adversity. It doesn't get much worse than what happened to this young man. Right. It doesn't get much sadder. And he said to the audience, you know, if I don't seem as depressed as you think I should be, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But when I look back on my life, I realize I've made most of my dreams come true, and I've had a great life. Now think of that as a response. Instead of, you know, why me, it's unfair, all this kind of stuff. And what he said to Diane Sawyer on a special was he could spend those six months bitter and mad and, and just angry at everybody and everything, or he could spend those six months being remembered by his children, spending time with his wife, and being thankful for, you know, the days that he has. Gee, that's what we're talking about, response. Everyone is capable of that, Terry. Everyone's capable of that response. But you have to choose it. And again, I go back to my premise that life doesn't care if you choose to let it beat you up. It just keeps going. Life wouldn't care if Randy got angry. It would just take his six months and he would die anyway. But he's going to get so much more quality out of those six months, have it be so much more sacred and special because of his choice to live it. So that's what I'm talking about, your core response. What can you control? What do you own? How far is this adversity going to reach into your life? And how long do you think it's going to endure? And once you begin to answer those questions and you learn to answer them, because your brain doesn't know the difference between a real incident and something you've made up. It doesn't. Really? Yeah. It, it doesn't know. So if you lay in bed and you worry that tomorrow your mother's going to die, 
or you imagine that your mother's going to die tomorrow, your brain reacts as if it really happened. And so you're laying in bed with all these bad, you know, in, uh, organisms going on in your bloodstream and all this kind of stuff because you're feeling really bad about your mom dying because your brain thinks she did. Right. It doesn't know that it hasn't happened yet. You're feeding your brain. Or like if you're angry, you know why they say don't ever go to bed angry? Well, when you're angry, all those, you know, bad drugs in your body and all that kind of stuff, you're not going to sleep and you're going to wake up sick and you're going to catch that cold because all that stuff is still in your brain and your brain hasn't gotten rid of it because you won't let it. You're holding on to it. Because it's toxic. Yep. And as soon as you let it go... now. See, that's the hard part, and that's what's so important about this core, re- core response. Um, so uh, that's what's so important about knowing how to respond to the tough stuff is your brain then begins to go, oh, we feel better. Oh, we're going to work through this. Oh, there's some control I have over it, and your brain starts to put out the non-toxic stuff. It's very, very interesting. You know, they, they, they will never create anything more interesting than the human brain or anything more powerful or anything more spectacular. But most of us don't use it in the right way. So I go back again to my definition of old and O being the outlook. Number one is your resiliency and knowing how to respond when the tough stuff happens. Number two in outlook would be your optimism, which is really tied into resilience. How do you be optimistic if you're not resilient? The answer is you can't. You know, the answer is you you drink a lot and put a smile on your face and go, I'm doing fine. Exactly. (laughs) The phony face. That's right. But that's not optimism. That's a whole other, you know, issue. But optimism, again, is the ability to see past the difficulty, to maintain, like I said, when I get up in the morning, I've got MS, I've had 18 skin cancer surgeries, uh, you know, everybody's got stuff, but to get up and go, I'm back, and be glad that you're back, and be glad that you have a chance. A lot of people, because I'm small, and I have a little voice, and I'm blonde, and I'm a professor, a lot of my colleagues think, I'm just a Pollyanna, I can't be very bright, because I'm so optimistic. You know how they think optimistic people, well, you you just don't know how bad everything is. I know that very well. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I would argue, that it takes more intelligence and fortitude and strength and intelligence to see everything that's wrong and not be a pessimist, to say, you know what, it could still be better, and I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I can still, in my own corner of the world, make things wonderful and make things better and have people smile. You know, it gets tiring. There's no question about it, being the one that smiles at everyone and walks by and says hello, and people look at you like, do I know you? <laughs> I know. I always am waving to everybody down the street. My yeah. husband's like, you don't know them. I'm like, oh, I Who know. cares? <laughs> Who cares? Because what you put out, Terry, and you know this, what you put out is eventually what you're going to get back. That's true. And so if you're putting out optimism and joy, even on the days you don't feel like it, again, here's another fabulous thing about your brain. You've read this. If you don't feel very good a certain day and you smile, by about two hours in, after just smiling, like, I, when I was a young girl, I would see these beautiful cars that would just, I knew, cost so much money. And who was behind the wheel of these cars? These prunes. <laughs> prunes! <laughs> these women that just looked so 
so ugly and mean, and their little mouths were all tight. And I thought, geez, I'd rather drive my little Volkswagen if that's what it's going to cost me to get a BMW. I mean, really. And here's the deal. So you drive around with a little smile on your face, no matter what's going on in your life, because it, it, it's a better look than a frown anyway. And pretty soon your brain goes, are we happy? I don't get it. I feel because the smile muscles in your face, release the endorphins, and pretty soon it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you start feeling better. Amazing. The human person is amazing. So anyway, um, optimism, again, one of the first things we're given as our birthday present, our very first birthday present, is this ability to, to hope and find joy and smile and, and look at the bright side because the glass, Terry, is always full. It is always full. Not even half full. Full. Uh, uh, it's always full if you let it be. You know, if you let it be. And again, it has to be a choice. You have to matter enough to yourself. And I've had a lot of girlfriends who have gone through some really nasty divorces and things like that. And sometimes you don't matter enough to yourself. And in those kinds of cases, sometimes you have to matter enough to your kids. What kind of role model are you giving them? You know, and sometimes exactly. What, yeah, sometimes what you do for other people, then turn around and you can then find the strength to do it for yourself. But you have to rise above it. It's, Absolutely. No matter how nasty. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, it can get nasty. It's been there, done that. <laughs> but, people, people can get nasty. It, they can. Uh, and, again, you know, uh, so the O part is your outlook. You know, how do I choose to see the world? How do I choose to see what's going on and what's happening? And it's not about being blind, but it's about your reaction to it. It's about, you know, uh, I remember Beverly Sills, the opera singer, had a bracelet with the initials B-T-D-T, been there, done that. I like that. And, uh, but, but here was the problem with it. If you think of that too long, then you begin to lose your wonder for things. It's like, oh, I've been there, I've done that, I don't want to do that again. So if you, one of the other things about your outlook is maintaining a sense of wonder, about making yourself notice things. Um, you know how long people can live in a place and not notice what kind of birds are around their house or what kind of trees they have or what the flowers or, or notice their neighbor next door just moved in. Who is that? You know, just find asking questions, being curious, not thinking that you know everything already. Uh, a, a young mind is a flexible mind. A young mind is somebody that says to you, you want to go eat Indian food? And you go, no, <laughs> I hate that. Okay, now you're on your way to being old. Because even if you, it's not your preference, there might be something new you've never tried, never eaten, a new place you've never gone, a new song you've never sung, whatever it might be. You begin to get old the first time you say no to a new adventure, a new possibility, a new way of thinking of things. So I would also urge your listeners not only to take a look at their resilience and their optimism, but also their sense of wonder. How many questions are they asking during the day? How many new things do they add to their repertoire? Jack Welch, the president of GE, used to walk down the hallways of GE, and if he saw you, he'd ask you, what have you added to your resume in the last year? And if the person kind of went, uh, uh... Um, nothing. They fi he fired him. Right really? There the, yeah, right there on the spot. 
And so, you know, okay, I can't fire you, but what have you been adding to your life experiences? What new thing? What new? Did you learn a language? Did you take on some sort of um, challenge? Did you climb Mount Kilimanjaro? What did you do that was new this year, this month, this week, that, again, keeps you flexible and young? And that's part of growing young. And that's like put that on your list of your things to do and do them. Absolutely. Find something that challenges you and is new. And I'm telling you, you will grow young pretty fast. Well, I knew that I was going to need a fall two segments <laughs> with you. I was very smart about this when I read this book because <laughs> we are out of time for our first segment, but we are going to return with segment two. So if you'd like transcripts for the first segment, go to personallifemedia.com, and we're going to link you to Dr. Rhonda Beeman so you can buy her book, You're Only Young Twice. And we're going to be taking a commercial break, and we're going to be back with segment two. Thank you, Dr. Beeman, for being with us today, and we're going to have to come back. I knew we'd need a full hour with Ah, you. Ah, great. Thanks so much, Terry. All right. We'll be right back. This concludes Part 1. The interview will be continued in the next episode of this show.